Welcome to Slossing Girl Speaks. I'm your host, Slossing Girl, bringing you world news with a South Central state of mind. Want to give a huge shout out to this week's sponsors, Los Angeles. The Girls Room Wax, located on Rosecrans and Harthon, has got you covered for all your waxing needs, from brows to bikini and Brazilian to full body waxes. And their services are not limited to just women. Men, come get smooth too. Follow the girls' room wax on Instagram and book an appointment at the link in their bio. That's the girls' wax room located at 3506 Rosecrans Avenue in Los Angeles. Make sure to hit them up for all your waxing needs. Congrats are in order for Chef Kendra, who recently opened the doors to Swift Cafe in October. The cafe is located on Crenshaw and Lamert Park, Acosta Street, and a few doors down from Taco Mel. Chef Kendra is aware that the area of Lamert Park is considered a food desert, which means healthy food options are limited. She specifically chose the space of Lamert Park to provide residents with options that contribute to their wellness. The menu at Swift Cafe on Crenshaw includes coconut curry chickpea with garlic naan, salmon, shrimp bowls, as well as healthy desserts-inspired smoothies. Police are asking for the public's help after what is being labeled as a possible kidnapping caught on camera in Lemur Park. A home surveillance video caught the screams of a woman frantically asking for help. You could also hear the voice of a man apologizing. Moments later, a light-colored Prius with a cracked passenger window passed by with the woman inside. Police are said to have canvassed the neighborhood going door-to-door, but according to reports, they were unable to find any evidence of a kidnapping. If you have any information, you are encouraged to contact the police about this incident. A 30000 reward is now being offered in the Long Beach shooting that left three people dead and nine others wounded on Halloween. The Los Angeles Board of Supervisors and the Long Beach City Council is offering the reward for information leading to the arrest of the suspect. The shooting occurred near 7th and Temple, where police say at least one individual climbed a wall and shot into a party where at least 39 people were present. Anyone with information is encouraged to call the Long Beach Police Department. Presidential candidate Bernie Sanders visited East Los Angeles this weekend on his presidency campaign trail. The massive rally drew thousands from the Latinx community of East Los Angeles and surrounding L.A., Bernie Sanders and other political candidates understand the growing voting power of the Latin community, which continues to be the fasting-growing immigrant group in the U.S. Reports are that Bernie Sanders is putting a lot of faith into Latinx voters to help him secure California. Good, because I'm not voting for Bernie Sanders after he said he does not believe in reparations for African Americans as a Jewish man whose family is a survivor of the Holocaust. I think that is just unacceptable. But shout out to Bernie Sanders.
Alex Alonzo is the creator of Street Gangs TV and the popular YouTube channel Street Gangs. His research-based news platform and website includes interviews from Southern California gang members, graffiti artists, community activists, politicians, and hip-hop artists. His platform has become very popular due to the fact that you can find the latest information regarding gangs in Los Angeles, in particular, history of the Bloods and the Crips. LA Weekly writes, if you want to know about gangs in Los Angeles, don't ask a cop, ask Alex Alonzo. The widely popular platform that Alex has built provides historical knowledge regarding the history of L.A. street gangs. His, he features interviews from those who can provide first-hand knowledge to help us understand the history of L.A. gang culture, especially those who want to understand the current climate. His YouTube channel has over 125 million views and counting. Beyond street gangs, Alex is a sociologist, filmmaker, and professor at Cal State University, Long Beach, where he is a lecturer in the Chicano and Latino Studies Department. Alex, how are you today? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me, Tina. Thanks so much for coming through. I really do appreciate your time. I know you're a very busy person, especially being a professor and all. Um, So, for those who may be unfamiliar with your platform, Street Gangs, tell the listeners a little bit about what you do. Well, the platform itself uh, started off with uh, with the website. I did the website just as a, a an assignment, really, for my senior class when I was a student, undergraduate student at USC, University of Southern Cal. And this is the 90s. <laughs> this is the beginning of the Internet. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately for me, you know, I, I saw the birth of the Internet, and I was told that this was going to be a huge impact on our lives. It's going to control a lot of things. And we're talking about 1994 when I was a senior at USC. So I had an assignment, create a website, any topic you want, whatever you want to put on it. And we learned some basic HTML code and gangs had always been my favorite topic. So I said, I'll do a website on gangs. And that's how it really started Uh, from an assignment from a professor when I was a senior. So what it is today now, I mean, it's it's a YouTube channel, it's a website, there's a forum, there's news. I mean, there's everything that you want to know about street gangs, whether it's historical or contemporary. Mm -hmm. There's some information on the site that's going to be beneficial to you. But I focus a lot on, on the video interviews, the my documentaries and I've been posting those consistently for years now Mm -hmm. Um, before even YouTube became what it is now. I had my YouTube channel when YouTube came out. No one knew that YouTube was going to really dominate the internet landscape when it came to videos, but I was posting videos on YouTube uh, over 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's amazing because like, you know, you, you understood the potential of where the internet could go and you really like tapped into it early on. And now you, you have this, this amazing platform that you have grown for 20 plus years at this point. So let's talk a little bit still about USC, you know, so you get this, this class assignment, um, you start compiling this research. Um, the, the research ends up being hosted, like you said, on a, on a server that was through USC and so 
but you're a senior, so you graduate, you get your your bachelor's degree in what at USC? My bachelor's degree is in environmental studies. Oh, yeah, wow. and with a minor in geography, though. I'm actually a geographer, mm. but my BA is in environmental studies. Oh wow, that's amazing! And so from there, you go on to get your master's at USC. Well, I didn't go right away to get my master's. Um, what I did was I took a full time job at the university as a geographic information systems analyst, which is basically uh, what Google Earth is. Mm -hmm. Everyone uses Google Maps, Google Earth. You see the satellite map, and you see how to get from one place to another place. I actually helped develop that at USC in the mid-1990s. So it was part of what was called a digital map project. And I had already been working on that when I was still an undergrad but they offered me a full-time position because at that time there were very few people in the United States that knew how to manipulate satellite imageries and turn it into a, a map that had latitude and longitude with spatial reference points. And I really didn't know how, what I was doing at the time either. So I developed this. Uh, it's a real complicated thing that I'm sure <laughs> is going to bore most people. But I developed a way to take um, satellite images and stitch them together and make one large image of an, an entire city, for example. Because when the satellites take pictures of cities, it's usually just a small little area, maybe like 10 blocks by 10 blocks. So the satellites keep taking pictures at high resolution. So now you have a bunch of these pictures. They're called um, digital orthoquads. But now you want to put them together so you can have a big coverage. The same way when you go into Google Maps, you can scan through the whole city. That's not one picture. Mm. That's a bunch of photos stitched together. So I was doing that, but at the same time, I was working on my platform. Mm. (laughs) You know, so I was working full time, and then I did that, and then uh, eventually I went to grad school after that. Okay, nice. And where'd you go to grad school? Same place. Same place. Trojan through and through. That's what's up. (laughs) At the University of SoCal. Um, you know, the university has been good to me. You know, that, that university actually changed my life, you know, and, and going to college and going to a university is really not for everyone. I understand right. that. Um, but it was something that I definitely needed because it helped me tap into my my inner intellect mm-hmm. that I didn't know was even there. Uh, I was um, I was a student that was told you'll never get into SC. And just so everyone knows, I didn't go to USC as an 18 year old freshman at a high school. I got it took me four years after high school to get into SC. Hmm. So, you know, I was an old 21 year old freshman on campus. You know, I I graduated when I was 24 and usually, you know, most graduates are 21. So uh, it wasn't something that came easy. And I was actually denied the first time. But it it treated me so well. You know, it gave me my first full time job. It gave me my degree. And then uh, I was actually offered to go to grad school through some professors that saw some potential. So I stayed at USC and and continued grad school. Okay, nice. That's amazing. And so did it stop there for you in terms of like uh degrees and stuff like that or No, nah, I just continued um when I went to grad school, I asked the professors like what can I study because when you go to when you work on a master's degree, it's really whatever you want to do. Okay. Whatever you want to write about. Most master's programs, you got to write a thesis. Mm -hmm. And it's basically whatever you want to write about. So I said, I'll I'll go to work on this as long as I can do it in the area of gangs. Mm. So I did. And what I did was I took some of the research that I had already built up that was on my platform, Mm -hmm. on the website, 
and it was basically some maps. I was really into the mapping of gang territories at the time. And I turned that into a master's thesis, looking at mapping and the locations where street gangs were present over the course of four different time periods. So I made a map for the 90s. I found a map for 1983. I found another map for 1978. I found another map for 1972. And then I made a map for 1960. This is all for gangs in L.A. So I had these different time periods, and I just wrote about them in a master's thesis. And it came out pretty good, I think. Mm-hmm. It's pretty. It's well-cited. It's well-known. It's, um, it's online for anyone who's interested in it. It's called The Territoriality of African-American Street Gangs in Los Angeles. I published it in 1999, which is, wow, what, 20 years ago this year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, 20 years ago this year, I published Territoriality Among African-American Street Gangs. You can find that online, and, and there's maps in there for all those time periods that I just mentioned. Okay, nice. Wow. So let's talk a little bit about some of the research that you, you've done and the information that you've come to understand about street gangs in L.A., Is there a year that we can say, like, for sure that gangs in L.A. started in terms of, I guess the way I understand it is, like, pre-Bloods and Crips. You know, you have, like, these groups of of black men in the community um, that I've, like, seen in the documentary... um, um, Bastards, Bastards of the Party, of the party right. which I produced, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. Yes, that's amazing. <laughs> okay, good because I definitely want to talk to you about that because that is just like an amazing. Directed he, by Clee Bone Sloan, that was right. basically his brainchild, and right. he brought me along. That is amazing. Um, and so in there, it talks about how before the Bloods and the Crips, there were the like groups like the Businessmans and the Slossons. What information do we know about these groups? The information that we know about these groups first came to light through myself and Bone. Uh, prior to that, it was all regionally kept. I mean, all these brothers knew the history, right? but it wasn't documented anywhere. Okay. You know, so this is this actually happens during a time I'm writing my master's thesis because I didn't mention this. One of the chapters in my master's thesis is about the history. Even though I, there's a, a mapping component to my, my thesis, there's a chapter about the history. And at this same time, Bone came to me and said, look, I'm doing this do- documentary. I'm doing the film. You're doing the master's thesis. Let's come together and bring it all together. So that's where it started. And we were able to track down the founders of the Slossons, the founders of the businessmen, and a bunch of other guys from that time period, which we're talking about the very late 1940s and the early 1950s. So, Mm. for example, Bird, um, he is a member of the Slossons. We interviewed him in Bachelors of the Party, and now you may there's other clips of him around online, and he's currently like um, in his mid-70s. And he has a lot of history. But prior to Bastards of the Party, Bird had never really gave a full-length interview. Mm. Also, we tracked down Raymond Suge Wright, who was the founder of The Businessmen. 
And he tells us incredible stories of being, you know, having a fight with the white kids in Los Angeles and and discrimination from certain parks. They couldn't go to these parks. You couldn't go swimming here. For example, um, Sportsman Park, which is now Jesse Owens Park on Century and Western. That was restricted. Oh, wow. And it, it wasn't until these brothers said, nah, we, we're, we're going to go up in there and we're going to do what we want to do. Uh, we also tracked down um, Chinaman. Actually, I should say that Raymond Sugarite, uh, he's resting in peace. He passed in 2017 at the age of 79. He almost turned 80. Um, and then we tracked down um, Chinaman, who's the founder of the Slossons. He's also resting in peace. Uh, he was killed in prison um, several years ago. So we tracked all these brothers down, and they basically told the same story of how South Los Angeles was pretty much all white. Uh, they were confined to a small community on the east side, and it was through their efforts that they were able to bust out of this ghetto and go to different parks, play softball at different parks, go swimming at different parks. So you, your question is, is there a date when all of this this started. Um, I would just say I remember speaking with Suge Raymond Wright, the founder of the Businessman, and he takes me back to the late 1940s, 1948, 1949, um, and he remembers um, the uh, the oppression and the racism from the whites that lived in LA at that time. So I don't have an exact date, but we can definitely say that their period was the 1950s when all of these changes started to take place, up mm-hmm. until you get to the Watts riots of 1965. Oh, wow. Okay. So touching on bastards of the party, um, the name in itself, bastards of the party, which I thought uh, was incredible. It, it cause it, it sheds a light on contemporary gangs and says that, um, these 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 youth this next generation are kind of like disconnected from like the previous generation and they're quote unquote like bastards of the party um what exactly does that mean okay well in in terms of this LA gang history we got to give a huge shout out to an author named Mike Davis He wrote a book in 1990 called City of Courts, and this book both had an impact on myself and had an impact on Bone, Clee Sloan, but we didn't know. We we were both reading this book independently. Oh, wow. I was reading it um, at USC in the early 90s, and he was reading it, I believe he was reading it in jail, but there's a chapter in this book. There's actually two chapters in the book that talks about gang history. And it's really the first place where this much detail went into Los Angeles gang history, going back to the businessmen all the way to the Bloods and Crips. And this hadn't been done anywhere else. So if there's anyone out there that's really interested in L.A. gang history, especially as it relates to the Crips and Bloods, you have to read City of Courts. You have to go back and read Mike Davis. And the beautiful thing about these type of books, there's uh, in, in, a reference for everything that he says. So you could always you can go back to his references, which is what I did. I went to every single reference that Mike Davis had. And there's newspaper clippings that he he depended on, um, the California Eagle, mm-hmm. the L.A. Sentinel, going all the way back to, to tell this story of black Los Angeles. So really, that's the 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 starting point of all this LA gang history that you see on the internet 
It goes back to Mike Davis's 1990 book. And in that book, there's a line where he discusses the early wave of blooding and cripping. And he called them kids the bastard offshoots of the Black Panther Party. Mm. And Bone kind of took that line and he just changed it around and just said bastards of the party. Bastards are the the kids that came out of this vacuum in the late 60s in 1969 when there was no more leadership. All the leadership was put in prison. We're talking about Geronimo Pratt and all these brothers from the Black Panther Party. Um, Al Prentice, Bunchy Carter, or they were killed. So when these kids like Raymond Washington and Stanley Tookie Williams and Donald Archie and all these brothers came up on the east side and the west side, they didn't have anyone to look up to because all these guys were gone. Mm-hmm. So Mike Davis calls these this generation the bastard offshoot of the Black Panther Party. So that's where the the name of the documentary came about from Mike Davis's line, and we turned it around. Well, Bone did it, turned it around, and called it Bastards of the Party. Oh, wow. That's powerful. So go read that book. Um, mm-hmm. It's a great book for everyone that's interested in this L.A. gang culture. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. So um, I'm glad you mentioned our apprentice, Bunchy Carter, because that's definitely some, uh, something that I wanted to touch on with you. Um, from my understanding he was a member of the Slossons, leader of the Slossons. I wouldn't call him a leader of the Slossons. He was um a member of the see the Slossons had a bunch of sub cliques. Okay. And he was a member of the Renegade Slossons. And the Renegades came later. Okay. Um he wasn't part of like I, I mentioned earlier Chinaman who was the founder of the Slossons. Mm-hmm. He's a first generation Slosson. Okay. Um Al Purchase Bunchy Carter would be in the, around the same generation as Bird who we interviewed in Bachelors of the Party. Uh, I I believe Al Prentice Bunchy Carter was born in 1943 because there's some Slossons that were born in the 30s. Mm. So he came about, but he ended up kind of standing out amongst others because of his ability to to speak, his ability to lead. And when he was in prison, he met some Panthers that were from Oakland. Everyone knows the Black Panther Party started in Oakland. Right. And he brought that down to Los Angeles. They called it the Southern California chapter. But oftentimes I just call it the Los Angeles chapter. Um, I just say that just for easier to understand. (laughs) But it was called the Southern California chapter of the Black Panther Party. Mm. So I think like I'm I'm really intrigued with his story because I feel like we he's not like a well known or like highly talked about figure in the black community maybe like in LA communities or like you know like older communities but I just don't really feel like you know like the younger generation of LA really knows the story of um, Bunchy Carter um and so you mentioned him and the Black Panther Party in LA which is like another thing that I don't feel that the younger generation widely knows the story of the Black Panther the Black, the Black Panthers in L.A., in their office that was located on 41st and Central. Correct. And um, I think, like, I mean, when you drive past there today, the whole, like, building has just been demolished. And I have to, um, you know, like, give a shout-out 
to the director who made the documentary. Gregory Everett. Exactly. 41st and Central. Right. You know, because, like, thankfully that he did that project because it just provided a wealth of knowledge that I didn't even know regarding the history of, like, Black Panthers in L.A. Well, you know, he was heavily inspired by Bachelors of the Party. And mm. Gregory Everett is a, a longtime friend of mine. Okay. I've known him since I was like uh, 14 years old. Oh, wow. Uh, the brother's a few years older than me. Um, but uh, he, he did an incredible job on 41st and Central. In fact, the, the job, the, the amount of information that he has gathered for that documentary is too much for one, one film. Mm-hmm. So he's currently converting that one film into like multiple episodes I'm not sure if it's going to be six or eight episodes. And if you were fortunate enough to see a screening of 41st and Central, because you're not going to find it online anywhere, uh, you'll notice that he interviews some of the same people that were in Bachelors of the Party. Mm-hmm. And But he went deeper. He went further. And he went, um, he just went hard. And, <laughs> and it's an incredible film. And I can't wait till he completes it and puts it into those episodes. But you mentioned uh, Bunchy Carter. We learned about Bunchy Carter. I'm saying we, um, Bone and myself, from meeting all these guys on the streets in the early 1990s. And there's a book that actually had a photograph of him in it. And if anyone who's interested in this history, uh, go get this book called Agents of Repression. Mm. And it talks about Bunchy Carter his role in Los Angeles, his leadership skills and ability, and really the assassination of Bunchy Carter at UCLA in January of 1969. For those who don't know, he was murdered. Right. Exactly. And so why do you, why do you feel that like his story isn't widely discussed like that, especially considering the fact that him along with John Huggins were murdered at such a prestigious university in LA. You know, it just takes it just takes people like uh Clebone Sloan, Gregory Everett, myself Alex Alonso to just keep on talking about these people. Right. Well, you know, Bunchy was killed, you know, early on, 1969, and I think you're right because Fred Hampton was murdered by the Chicago PD in and he was also a leader of the Black Panther Party and I feel like there's more conversation and more discussion about about Fred Hampton than there is about Bunchy Carter. Right. Um, and, you know, I went to Bunchy Carter. You know, his mom celebrated her 100th birthday in, I believe, April of 2018, last year. So she was born in 1918. She made it to 100 years old, but she passed uh, earlier this year. She didn't make it to 101. But um, Gregory Everett has the last interview with Bunchy Carter's mother. Gregory Everett has the last interview with Geronimo Pratt. Mm. So that's what makes this film, 41st and Central, so incredible. And I, I just hope he hurries up and, and, and finishes this that, that movie. Okay, okay. So, so we've talked about, you know, your journey through USC and establishing the platform street gangs. We've talked about, um, you know, like influencers or like people of influence, people of history in LA that don't really get like much, don't get talked about a lot. 
And so now I kind of want to bring it back to contemporary, like, street gang culture. The Bloods and the Crips? The Bloods and the Crips. And, you know, the... You know, the Latin gangs and stuff like that. Um, so at this point, you've been doing um, this work and having your platform, Street Gangs, for 20 plus years. Can you share some of the most compelling information or issues about gangs in Los Angeles that you have learned through your research? Well, a lot of times when we talk about the Bloods and Crips, we jump, we go from the gangs from the 50s and 60s okay. that you mentioned earlier, the businessmen, the Slawsons, the the Rebel Rousers, the Gladiators, uh, there was so many of them. Then you get to this point in 1965 where Bunchy Carter was able to bring everyone together. Uh, Ron Karenga also played a small role in this because in addition to the Black Panther Party, you also had the US organization. They were cultural nationalists led by Ron Karenga, uh, who's a colleague at, at, the Univ- at Cal State University of Long Beach. He's a professor there. But US and Panthers butted heads all the time and that's what led up to the murder at UCLA was the conflict between Ron Karenga's group us and the Black Panther Party but what we, and then we usually go right into the story of the Crips and the Bloods because they kind of came out in late 1969 and this and Bunchy Carter was murdered in January 69 it's believed that Raymond Washington had this idea of cripping in late 69 but between that, you also have this other gang that not too many people talk about, but it's called the Avenues, hmm. led by a dude named Craig Munson. Now, Craig Munson, he's the bridge between the gangs of the 50s and 60s, the Black Panther Party, and the Crips and the Bloods. This is the one guy that's the bridge between all of this, because he actually was a member of the businessmen. When he was a kid, when he was 12 years old, he became a businessman. But then after all of those gangs faded away and everyone went political, like Bunchy was leading everyone to become more political. Craig Munson wasn't interested in that, but Bunchy Carter recruited him into the Panthers and used him as a bodyguard because at this time, Craig Munson was lifting weights. He was one of the big, most muscular dudes on the streets. So he actually hung out with Bunchy Carter. He knew the entire family. Uh, there's two other brothers, uh, Gregory Carter, and um, Gregory Carter was actually uh, hung out with the Avenues, and then there was Kenny Carter, who's currently in prison, uh, and then they had some other brothers also by another father, but those are the, the three main Carter brothers was Bunchy Carter, Gregory Carter, and Kenny Carter. These were all Craig Munson's best friends, so as Bunchy Carter is trying to bring Craig Munson into the movement into the Panther movement, he's kind of resistant. He doesn't want to do that. He goes to the streets and becomes one of the biggest thugs in Los Angeles during the years of 67, 68, and 69. And at this time, little Raymond Washington is looking up to Craig Munson, even though there's only a two-year difference between them in age, but when you're a teenager, two years is a lot. So Raymond Washington is hanging out with the Avenues. And this is around 1968, in 69, a lot of people don't know that Raymond Washington, his mom lived on 76th Street on the east side, but his father had a house right off of 84th and Hooper, and that's where the, the avenues were born. But one day, Craig Munson kicks Raymond Washington out of the garage gym that they had and lifted weights, and once he kicked him out, that's when Raymond Washington said, I'm going to start my own gang. Hmm. 
Forget about your gang, Craig. Forget about the avenues. I'm starting my own gang. And that became, then the Crips were born from that incident that happened in Craig Munson's garage. So that's why I say Craig Munson is the bridge to all of this because he was a member of the old gangs. He was literally a member of the Panthers, even though he kind of... um, resisted the Panthers. Mm -hmm. He started his own gang, the Avenues, and the Avenues gave birth to the Crips. Wow. Yeah, I didn't didn't know that. And so I'm glad you touched on that uh, to give people just like that that insight. Because, yeah, it definitely just sounds like, you know, Raymond Washington, um, Tookie Williams and Raymond Washington just had this idea for the Crips. So what I want to ask you, did, did the Crips stand for community revolution in progress? No, it didn't stand for that initially. Um, there's like so many myths on how the, the name Crips came about. Um, I write a little bit about it in my 1999 thesis. There's some more information has come out since then. And I'm currently not sure how Raymond came up with this name Crips. Because <laughs> I've heard from people who knew Raymond personally different mm-hmm. stories. I don't know how that came about, but the acronym came about when Don Ifu, um, Raymond Cook, he wrote a constitution for the Crips when Mayor Tom Bradley came into effect in Los Angeles. The first black mayor of, of Los Angeles was Tom Bradley, and this would have been around 74, 1974, so there was a a program that they were trying to link up with with the city of L.A. under the, the mayor. So Raymond Cook wrote a a constitution and came up with this acronym after the fact. So all of these acronyms came up after the fact. There were two that came up. One was a Community Revolution in Progress, but the city of Los Angeles didn't like revolution in the title. It was just too radical for them. So it became... I believe community response or something like that. But yeah, all of that came after the fact. It did not, um, it wasn't part of the founding of the Crips under Raymond Washington. Okay. Okay. So the Crips, you know, is formed and, um, then the bloods come as a response to that. Um, at what point can you pinpoint through your research? Did, things just like begin to just spiral out of control within South Central to where you just see like, you know, highly organized criminal enterprises, you know, murders and just like just chaos. Well, I would say that if we give the late late 1969 as the founding of the Crips under Raymond Washington, then we start to see things really change in 1972. 72, we have quite a few murders that really changed the gang landscape in Los Angeles. You had the murder of the first Brim, Little Country. You had uh, the murder of Robert Ballou at the Palladium where the West Side Crips uh, allegedly uh, stomped to death Robert Ballou. Um, you had a couple other murders, and then you had the first Pyru murdered in early 73, Clifford Ray Johnson, and then now you're getting all of the gang conflict coming into effect. So 72 and 73 
were really turning points. Also, you have Craig Washington's, I'm sorry, Raymond Washington's right-hand man, Craig Craddock, that was killed in October of 72. So prior to 72, you really don't have a whole lot of murders. Um, And then that became, the the, to me, in my opinion, 72 became the... um, the turning point where gang conflict started to intensify okay. and that continues into 74, 75, all the way up till you get to 79 when it really comes to a head in 79. And what brings it to a head in 79? In 79 is you have full fledged crip on crip conflict okay. for most of the seventies. Most of the crips got along. Um, they were always fighting what I call the anti-Crips, which became the Bloods. So a lot of those murders in 72, 73, 74 that were gang-related were Crip against Blood, Blood against Crip. Even though I'm not, um, I'm not sure when the Blood, I'm not sure what date we give the Blood identity, but the anti-Crips and the Crips were responsible for a lot of this conflict. But once you get to 1978, you have Crips killing Crips. Mm-hmm. And by 79, you have at least three full, full-on full Crip versus Crip conflicts in the city of L.A. And, you know, that takes us right into the 80s, which becomes the most violent decade in Los Angeles history. And so the 80s, isn't this around, like, the time of the crack epidemic? Definitely. Um, the crack epidemic... Well, crack hit probably 82. Okay. And it really wasn't crack. A lot of people call it crack. I don't know why we say crack. It was rock cocaine. Rock cocaine. There was no such thing as crack. No one ever used the word crack in the 80s. Um, I've heard a couple of theories on where the word crack came from. I never really investigated it. Mm -hmm. But it was rock cocaine. Okay. And that hit probably 82. Okay. Uh, I first heard about rock cocaine in 1984 I was young you know I was 13 years old um in 82 when it hit I was just 11 so you know 11 year old doesn't know anything about that stuff but when I got into middle school junior high that we called it back then uh, I started hearing about rock cocaine I even wrote a paper about it in in my uh, ninth I believe it was in eighth grade or ninth grade I wrote a paper about the batter ram that was used by Chief Daryl Gates to try to access all the rock cocaine before you flush it down the toilet. <laughs> but um, and I might post that paper one day so people could read. I've been writing and the date of that paper. The date is on the paper, 1985. Wow. So I've been writing about this stuff for years. And right. It was well documented. Right. I'm going to post that paper for all y'all youngsters out there that don't know how long I've been doing this. <laughs> but I was writing about gangs. Rock cocaine, the police, and the batter ram, and a 1985 paper that I submitted when I was a student at John Burroughs Junior High. But yeah, during that period, uh, the violence did increase. Okay, so that brings me to this question. I was I was scrolling through your Instagram, and I saw that like you had posted the list of books that you were currently reading. Oh yeah, and in that book, you had Gary Webb's Dark Alliance. And um, for the people that don't know, 
Um, Gary Webb was a reporter at the San Jose Mercury newspaper, and he published um, a three-part series. He kind of, you know, tapped into the internet early on, kind of like how you did. And this, uh, this, the series, three-part series that he did about how crack became to just like dominate Los Angeles, and um, he like. Initially, his his the newspaper stood behind him, but once he published the piece, he just got like a lot of a lot of flack, and they kind of like backed away, and he just a lot. People should know about Gary Webb, especially if you live in Los Angeles, you're from South Central. You should know about the work that he did to provide this information. So, um, how important do you think Gary Webb's work is um, for us to really understand, like? the climate of what was going on during not not just the climate but how crack came to to flood the inner city of LA and do you think that his his book is valid I think that Gary Webb connected all the dots that a whole bunch of journalists already knew now if you do the research on journalists that were borderline writing about this but really weren't taking a full dive into it They were making these allegations about the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, about the Iran-Contras, about the Central American civil wars and drugs as a profit to finance all that. Gary Webb wasn't the one that really broke it. It was all these other journalists that kind of wrote about it, but then they would get threats or they would be challenged and they would stop writing about it. Mm Mm-hmm. Gary Webb is the first one to say, you know what, I'm about to connect all of the dots that people have already made and I'm going to put it together into a a complete series. And in 1996, he did just that for the San Jose Mercury News. It's probably the first real thing that went viral. They weren't even using the word viral in 1996. But I literally printed out all three parts of his series off the Internet in 1996 and and read it and it was incredible and it also led to his book that came out two years later dark alliance he called the book dark alliance came out in 1998 and yeah i think it's valid i think because um, gary webb wasn't the only one making this argument right. uh several other journalists from time magazine u.s news and world report a whole um new york times the associated press they were making the allegations in a smaller way, right. Gary Webb just came and said, I'm about to hit a grand slam with this story. And early, like you said, early on, people were loving it. But then, you know, the powers that be uh, influenced other journalists to attack mm-hmm. him. Right. You know, the New York Times attacked him wrongfully. The, the Washington Post attacked him wrongfully. Even the Los Angeles Times attacked him all wrongfully. And here we are 21 years later from the book. 23 years later and can't anyone challenge or dispute you know the things he wrote in that book right and it's also inspired television shows like snowfall Mm -hmm. snowfall is pretty much the gary webb story and freeway ricky ross story combined right you know so yeah it's valid and i recommend everyone in fact i'm it's on my um book of of list of books to read but i've already read that once right Really good books, you should read them more than once. I revisit really good books. So I put Dark Alliance back on my reading list, on my current reading list, because it's been many years since I read it. So it's kind of hard to remember all the details when you just read a book one time. So I put it back on my list to read it a second time. 
Okay, okay. No, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, I know you said it's been, you know, some some, some years since you've uh, read it, but you're revisiting it. One of the things that, like, a lot of things stood out to me in the book, um, but one of the, one thing that comes, like, to mind right off the bat is he talks about how before crack hit South Central or inner cities in America, there was a doctor that had testified before Congress about the effects of what they were calling like paste or something like that. That was like in different countries, like in Asia or some like it was, it, I don't think it had hit America yet. And he testified before Congress. It was basically, it was crack in rock form, but they weren't calling it like how they have labeled it in South Central. It had hit one of these other countries and he talked about it, it before Congress and said, you know, if this ever hit America, like this is going to have devastating effects. Like these people are like zombie like, you know, and like, I don't know. I just like, I just thought that was like really just compelling because I mean, clearly it was a something that they allowed to happen, but you had this doctor go before the Congress to to warn what would happen if it hit America. And um, so do you think that, like, there has been a, um, a uh, organized ploy to kind of mess up the black community in L.A.? Well, when it comes to drugs, you're talking about drugs coming up into our communities. I I'm think. talking drugs. I'm talking like in the overall grand scheme of things. Well, I think drugs is the number one thing that you can point to that has really decimated um, our communities. And I do believe that it, it was strategic. And I believe it started really on the East Coast. It started in Harlem. Right. You know, um, who was controlling the drugs in Harlem? In the 1950s, it was white folks. It was Italians. Right. It was the mafia. Right. And a lot of these drugs were coming in from overseas. Back then in the 50s, most of our drugs came from overseas. Right. Um, it was heroin. Heroin was the drug of choice for brothers. For those who don't know, heroin really never hit that hard for black folks in, in Los Angeles. Uh, a lot of Latinos like heroin in Los Angeles. But on the East Coast... Blacks loved heroin in the 1950s and 60s. Well, let's go trace where this heroin was coming from and who was bringing the heroin in and who was also financing the transportation of heroin into the black communities, into Harlem and into New York. And it was the Italian mafia, the white mafia, uh, specifically it was um, the Genovese family and it was the Colombo family. These are all white folks and All of these guys, these mafia families have direct connections to powerful politicians in the government. And where were they selling a majority of their drugs in the 50s and 60s? In Harlem, in the black community, in the Latino community. And I think that was really sort of the blueprint of how to get drugs into other communities. And I think Los Angeles eventually falls into that. But you got to go. You got to do this historically. You know, I'm a, I'm a historian at everything I look at. So I look at where did drugs first come in, who was bringing the drugs in, and who was behind it. So you can trace this all the way to New York City, Harlem, and to the mafia and into the politicians that supported those those um, drug dealers. And unfortunately, there were black folks 
that wanted to get on the bandwagon to make money. Uh, you know, I give them a pass because they were kind of influenced by the power structure that existed. They were basically told this is the only way you can make money. Right. You want to make money? Oh, do this. And of course, some brothers are going to sell out and say, "Okay, right. I'm gonna do it." Right. Of course, it, it eventually it became black selling the drugs in Harlem, but they were getting their drugs from the white dude. Right. You know, now in Los Angeles it's much different. We get most of our drugs come from South America, Mexico, um, and it comes from basically um, brown people who manufacture the drugs. Well, actually, let me take that back. Uh, when you go to South America, believe this or not, most of the people in power in South America are white. <laughs> Although we think of Spanish-speaking Latino people as being brown. We often use that term, brown people. Go to Argentina. Go to Colombia. Go to Bolivia. Go to all these countries, and you'll be surprised at how many white people live there. And these are your drug dealers uh, um, for the drugs that eventually came into the west side of the United States. Um, but now it's coming in through Mexico, and um, everyone is trying to get a piece of the pie now. But, yeah, I do believe that it was all strategic. It was all a plan to make money off of communities of color. Right. For sure, for sure. So let's talk a little bit about, um, since we are, like, mentioning the Latin community, and um, you also, you know, talk about Latin gangs in South Central or Southern California. Um, so how many Latino gangs would you say are in Southern California from your research? Well, Southern California, I couldn't give you the number because we're talking Southern California is like five counties. Right. Okay. South Central. Actually. Oh, okay. Let's bring well, it back home. if we just talk about, uh, let's just say LA County, um, in LA County, I would say there's well over 400 Mexican-American Salvadoran street gangs and maybe even close to 500, somewhere between 400 and 500. Wow. If you just do the city of L.A., we're probably talking about 200 and 200 plus Latino gangs for the city of L.A. And if you're talking about South L.A., Ooh, uh, I'd say uh, about 100 because South L.A. would be uh, the east side and the west side and Watts. Um, yeah, it was, it was about 100. But uh, okay. And I have a map. I have a digital map on my laptop that could bring up these statistics instantly. Okay. You know, but I'm just giving you guys ballpark figures. Okay, for sure, for sure. So I got a follow up question. But since we mentioned South L.A., I just have to ask. I just have to ask, what is up with this term, South L.A., to be referenced talking about South Central? What do you mean? Well, um, it seems as though South Central has been phased out, and now the new term is South L.A. Well, I'm part of the one that's phasing out South Central. I'm, okay, well, can we get a little context <laughs> as to why? I'm going to tell you why. The S South Central is actually a very derogatory and racist term to refer to where black people live in L.A. And it started because the original black community was on Central Avenue on the east side during the 1940s. Right. And they called that South Central Avenue. And we're talking about, you know, um, Vernon, 
in the in the thirties, in the twenties, the streets I'm referring to now. Uh, let's say from Fifteenth Street going north through the low bottoms, which is through the twenties, Adams through the thirties, um, and all the way up to Vernon was the heart of the black community during the forties. This was the jazz period. Mm-hmm. I mean, even um, Malcolm X visited this community in the 60s. Muhammad Ali came there. Um, all your great jazz people performed at these clubs along Central Avenue, right. along South Central Avenue. Now, after 1948, after the uh, restrictive covenants was deemed unconstitutional, black people were allowed to move out of this South Central Avenue na- neighborhood. Right. They were able to move south of Slauson, which was all white at the time, and they were able to move west, west of where the 110 freeway is now. Back then, the 110 freeway wasn't built, but I'm just using that as a reference point. They were able to move west of the 110 freeway, where restrictive covenants forbade blacks to live there. So then as blacks started to move west, and we're talking about Vermont, Western, now Crenshaw, that label that started all the way on Central Avenue South Central, where black people lived, just followed black people wherever they moved. Okay. So it was a term used to define not any geographic place. It was used to define wherever black people live. So let's say black people continue to move west because we're now we're west to La Brea. Let's say we go all the way to to Santa Monica. Mm-hmm. They're going to be calling Santa Monica South Central L.A. because that's where blacks move. So it, it kind of tracked the westward movement of blacks from South Central Avenue. And you look on a map during these years, there's no South Central. There's no defining boundaries of South Central. So news reporters, journalists who were doing stories about black LA just said, oh, uh, South Central, the South Central, meaning black folks. But Crenshaw is not South Central Los Angeles, (laughs) you know. um, But now that's the mecca of the black, black LA now. Crenshaw Boulevard, Lamert Park, that's the Mecca. So in the 90s, I started to resist using this term South Central because it had no defining location and it was just used to just say where black people lived. So I started to write South L.A. If you read my 1999 thesis, I believe I only refer to Los Angeles as South L.A. And I brought this up many times with local government, city government, council members. And a few years ago, um, they agreed to stop saying South Central to refer to the black community. Now, what's funny is that if if there's a story in, quote unquote, South Central L.A. about Latinos, they won't say South Central, even though it's the same place. This is like you have to really look at the news and look at how they they reference locations. Um, the, The media often gets it wrong. So that was just my whole gripe against it. Now, when people say it. I don't correct them. I don't say anything about it. I just, for, for myself, uh, I don't use South Central. And, for, and, and many of my colleagues who are sociologists or geographers that go back to, to the 90s with me, um, they understand it. But most people don't dig deep enough into that history because it was basically a label put on the black community by white folks. Mm. Okay. Well, you know what? I appreciate that context because I was trying to understand where this term South L.A. came from. And then when I researched it, like the kind of the first things that was coming up was that the city council had voted in 2007 to like, you know, phase it out. But I that was, was because of me, by the way, shout out to you. I was one of the first ones 
very vocal against people, basically white folks referring to the community as South Central because it has a a derogatory context. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a lot of stereotypes that is interwoven with this term South Central and it's become so popular that there are movies called it now. Right. There's rap songs about it. And, and black people themselves have embraced this term South Central as sort of being proud that that's where I live. That's where I'm from. Why not? But you're not from South Central. You know, you're, you're from Hyde Park. You're from Lamert. You're from but Mid-City. You're no. from West Adams. There's all these other specific... Every place in L.A. has a specific name of what it is. Okay, so what do you call Slauson, Broadway, Maine? Like, that's the east side of L.A. Like, But that's not East L.A. No, that's the east side. But some like Green Meadows is in that area. A lot of a lot of uh, black folks from the seventies and eighties will say, "Oh yeah, I'm from Green Meadows." That's off of Eighty uh, Eighth Street. Uh, some people just say the Low Bottoms. If you're from Slauson to Adams mm-hmm. on the East Side, that's the Low Bottoms. Of course, Watts. You right. know, people say Watts. Watts is part of L.A. But if you're from Watts, you never say I'm from Watts. You say I'm from. I mean, you never say I'm from L.A. So from you say Watts. I'm from Watts. Right, but right, technically, right. Watts is Los Angeles. Right. Um, so people in Watts will never say, they won't even say South L.A., but technically Watts is South L.A. So I just feel like, you know, have pride in the specific community you're from, whether it's West Adams, whether it's Lawson, whether it's uh, Hyde Park, whether it's Lamert Park, whether it's Jefferson Park, Exposition Park. I mean, there's all these specific names, right. but we just use this blanket term, South Central, and, right. it, and it loses the essence of all these places. I don't want to know if you're from Lamert Park, don't tell me you're from South Central. Right. Say you're from Lamert Park. Well, for somebody like me that didn't grow up in the Crenshaw district, like, you know, like Nipsey Hussle, Slauson and Crenshaw, I'm Slauson down, you hitting Broadway, you know? And this area, that area, we're not talking about Crenshaw and Slauson, we're talking Slauson and Broadway area, Slauson and Hoover, you know, like that's technically. I know that you're saying that it, it's not, like, geographically defined, but we've come to reference this place. And I get what you're saying, that as black people move west, that the the term started to follow them. And I don't agree with that. But I do think that if you lived in this particular section of, I don't, I, it's been called South Central so long. So I'm, I guess that's what, like, when people, when you say you're from L.A., you know, like, that's a blanket term and people be like okay we're in, in LA so where would I say that I'm from in LA I'm not talking Crenshaw District or Lamar Park I'm talking South Central you're talking <laughs> like Broadway and Manchester I'm talking um like more down Slauson and Broadway Slauson and Broadway but yeah like that area too would technically be considered I guess my thing that I didn't know that you were involved in it so it gives a little different feel to it I'm thinking that just the city council and voted to like you know like change the appeal of the area but my question is like like taking you out of it but when I first heard that they voted to change the name my question was how can you vote to change the name of South Central to South LA but the community conditions remain the same you talk you know the trauma the the violence the black people walking around looking like zombies the you know economic degradation all of that is still an issue well the government ain't gonna fix all of that that's for damn sure that's something that 
we got to do at the grassroots level. Right. Uh, I don't believe that they changed the name because they were trying to give it a more appealing term. I think that they heard um, my voice along with a few other voices. I wasn't the only one, by the way. But I certainly, because um, I studied the the Central Avenue history of mm-hmm. black Los Angeles very closely. Okay. And, you know, we actually started the, the um, I was working at USC in a, in the, the job I was telling you earlier, we actually started the Central Ave Jazz Festival. Mm-hmm. I believe the first one was in 1997 when we were really trying to revitalize black. This is, this is the heart of black LA historically is Central Avenue. Right. And if you go there today, it's majority Latino. Right. But we don't want, to lose the black history of this part of Los Angeles. So in 1997, uh, we actually got the first jazz festival going, and that came through some work that I was doing with USC. We also preserved the the Dunbar Hotel, which used to be called the Somerville Hotel. That was the that was a black owned hotel, right. which is still there on the corner of Forty um, Second and Central. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, over the years, the city council listened to some of the things we said, and and they agreed. So I, I don't believe it was uh, done in any efforts to try to make LA sound cuter or make it seem like a, in an effort to gentrify and things of that sort. It was just um, I, I looked at the term as a little bit racist. And, you know, a lot of people use it. They don't understand the history behind it. So that was really what was behind the name change. You know, South L.A. is a more responsible term to call this piece of Los Angeles. And in my view, and in the view of a lot of my colleagues who studied the history of this term, South Central. Right. And there is a a name for your community. I just don't know all of them. There's like literally... There's like 90 communities in the city of L.A. Right. So um, I don't know it off the top of my head, but I will definitely get back to you and and tell you what your area is called. Okay. well, in the meantime, it's South Central because I want (laughs) I want accountability. You feel me? I want accountability for what I've had to grow up in for generations just messed up. You know what I'm saying? Like the crack situation is really close to my heart because like I mean I don't tell people this no more I used to be proud of it because it's like okay look what I overcame you feel me but like you know like my mom was smoking crack she was all fucked up you feel me and like I was like a crack baby and so just understanding like what was going on during that time to kind of understand my own family's situation Mm -hmm. and generational trauma it, it is it is infuriating to see you know just like I don't feel like enough has been done to 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 help what has been like intentionally destroyed. You know what I'm saying? I feel you. And so I just feel like, you know, something has to be done because that's just jacked up. You know, like what's happened to. OK, but let's bring it back. So we talking about Central Avenue and how that was like the black enclave. Right. What was like the beginning moments that Central Avenue kind of begin to phase out itself Ooh, the central avenue probably started to phase out during the 60s um by the time you get to the 70s central avenue lost all its luster and appeal um there's a couple of good books out there on the history of central avenue unfortunately i can't remember the title of uh, the last one that i had but it just um gangs 
drugs, mm. uh, the, the clubs that really lined Central Avenue during the 40s and 50s started to disappear, mm-hmm. and things started to change uh, slowly. I would probably say just the, um, the economic decline of the area. Right. And also, you know, the police in that area during the 50s and 60s under William Parker, who was the chief in 1950, used to pressure a lot of these club owners on Central Avenue you know, about liquor licenses and and just fire things, like citations. And they really try to, like, disrupt the business environment of Central Avenue. So we can't ignore the harassment from law enforcement during those those years as well. So a combination of a lot of things brought the Central Avenue down in decline. Oh, man. But now we got Crenshaw, but Crenshaw ain't, is not no Central Avenue because there are no jazz joints. There's no they got Mavericks flats. But, you know, when you look at those pictures, I urge everyone, if you're really a fan of the history of black Los Angeles, look at some old photos of Central Avenue and look at the buildings and the clubs and what was going on. And you'll you'll, you'll be putting yourself in one of the most richest periods um, historically for black L.A. Hmm. I don't think we. I don't think we'll ever get back to that. Um, I think we've lost that that essence, um, and it's gonna take it's gonna take a miracle to try to get back to something like that again. I mean, look at you know, look at L.A. I mean, hey, you know, you actually answered a question of mine because sometimes I'd be wondering, like, has the damage just been done? Like, you know, like, can we kind of come back from a lot of, you know, what has happened to Black L.A. and uh, I guess you said we could with the miracle. Yeah, I mean, we're we're looking at like the last hope of Black Los Angeles culturally is Lamert Park, and Lamert Park is very small. You have Crenshaw, that's an extension of Lamert Park, um, but now you have this train, and you have all these developers that are all corporate owned. These are all corporations that are owning the land along the train. They're not going to build economic wealth for black Los Angeles. You know, they're going to line their own pockets and it's just like Vegas. Look at Vegas. If you go to Las Vegas, it's all corporations. Now it looks like a big old Disneyland. (laughs) But if you, if you understand the history of Vegas going back to its early years, you know, it was all independently owned and everyone was making money. Everyone had a piece of the pie. Corporations saw that and they took over. That's what's going on with this gentrification. It's, it's a huge land grab for developers to build and all of that land. Um, I hate to say it, but where the train is going down Crenshaw towards LAX airport, uh, it's owned by developers. Right. And it's just the, the land has become so expensive. We can't even own the land in our own neighborhoods. It's crazy. I know. That's why what Nipsey was doing was super powerful, you know, cause he seemingly snatched up a, a piece of the quote unquote pie. You that know piece, you know how much that, that strip mall cost? Two and a half. 2.5 million, I believe. Somewhere in that range. Now, how many of us, and here's the thing when you buy a property like Nipsey Purchase, that's commercial. So you have to have a 25% down payment cash when you buy commercial. It's different from with, with residential property. You can buy residential property with no money down. Or 5% or 10%. Right. But when you're buying commercial, you have to have 25%. So do your math. 2.5 million. Let's say that was 2.5 million. You got to have about six or 700,000 cash just to buy that one property. 
that's most people's. Um, well, I mean, most people don't have that, and if you do have it, it's probably your life savings. You know, so it's very difficult out here to invest commercially. Hmm. Definitely, definitely. So, um, man, this has just been like a very insightful conversation. Um, we've been going for a minute, but I just have like one or two more questions sure. that I really want to touch on since I have the pleasure of, you know, your presence. Um, something that I want to touch on are the relations between Latino and black gangs in L- in L.A., um, recently there, uh, from your page, I was following, there's been a truce, um, between the, uh, F-13s and the East Coast Crips, which is actually the neighborhood that I grew up in. I'm not gang affiliated, by the way. <laughs> Don't throw that out there. Um, but can you talk a little bit about the significance of this gang truce? This is a truce that most people said would never happen. Um, I was honored to pretty much be the first one to break the news on this truth online. Mm-hmm. Um, it was amazing. Uh, I met both sides. I know people on both sides. And when I first broke the news that this truth happened, oh, man, people didn't believe me. They said I was lying. You're lying, Alex. <laughs> Stop putting that out there. There's no way that these two gangs truced. You're putting out misinformation. Now, if you've been following me for the last 20 years, I don't never put out misinformation. Not knowingly and willingly, you know. <laughs> That's just never been my, my get down. Mm-hmm. But it started, um, I mean, it's it's really a long story. Um, that would be a whole podcast of how this truth came about. But I'll give you the short story. Um, started from a guy in prison that's a Florence member. And he had been making some significant changes. The first thing that they did was a hunger strike to end the shoe, the uh, security housing unit in Pelican Bay. Back in 2013, for those who know, the shoe is not a place you want to be in. Even if you're a prisoner, you don't want to be in the shoe. It's lo- it's 23-hour lockdown, you know, and you get one hour to take a shower and work out. Then you're back in this cage for 23 hours. So this guy, along with a whole bunch of others, decided we're about to challenge the system. We're about to end this shoe program. So they went on a hunger strike, and it was successful. They got out the shoe. When he got out the shoe, he said, I want to do a truce between the Southerners, the Southern Mexicans, and the Northern Mexicans who've been fighting since 1967. Boom. Truce went into effect in all California state prisons. And then came across his desk, you know what? My neighborhood's been fighting with these East Coast Crips for a long time. A lot of people have been murdered. That's the next thing I want to do. So he had been on this crusade already. And he got in touch with some East Coast Crips uh, during the course of several months and was unsuccessful. And then he finally met a guy named Little Doc Thune. Little Doc from from 6-8 East Coast. And... um, through another person named Petra, we got we to gotta mention Petra. Petra made the connection between Little Doc and a guy named Babo that's in prison from F-13. And they started having these conversations earlier this year um, during the summer. And by the time you get to September, they have their first face-to-face meeting and at that first face-to-face meeting had a handful of East Coast Crips and a handful of Florence 13s. But they had their third face-to-face meeting um, 
I believe that was either October 31st or November 1st. I was out of town when the third face-to-face meeting happened. But the photos that I've seen of the third face-to-face meeting, they're 100 deep on each side. Mm-hmm. So that just means that this truce has maintained. Now, I gave you the short and quick version of that story. Okay. There are so many like side stories that made this truce possible because it wasn't easy what little doc had to do because the east coast is is not just one set you know you got the six pack which is the six deuces the six eights the six nines and the um on the six sixes you have the five nines you got the eight sevens you got the seven sixes you got the eleven eights you got the one nine o's so he had to get people from all these different sections to agree and that's not an easy thing to do but Lil Doc was the only guy that was able to get it done, and that's really what made this truce possible. Okay, and so we talked about how it came, how it came about. And when I ask about like the significance of something like this, is because like, all right, like you touched on like how there had been a divide between Southern and Northern Hispanics, and this is like all prison politics that we're talking about here correct which you know let's just make that clear but something that i was very surprised to find out about was a that that there had been a divide between northern and southern hispanics and that within prison that divide of the the hispanics kind of like determines who links up with who in a sense that's correct and so um I asked about like this truce between the F-13s and the East Coast Crip because um, it is my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, that in prison, Southern Hispanics do not flow with black people. That's um, on, on a level four yard or level three yard. You're absolutely correct. Now, if you're on a level one. Okay. You might you might see some brothers and, and some Southern Mexicans chopping it up because the politics on a level one is not that strict. But you're right. If you're on a level four prison, you are not seeing interaction between Southern Mexicans, Southsiders, as we call them, and blacks. The blacks function with the Northern Mexicans and the Southern Mexicans function with the AB, the Aryan Brotherhood. So that's just the way the politics is lined up in the California Department of Corrections. Right. And so one thing that I always wonder about is like, okay, if these are prison politics, like how does that spill over once, you know, these people are released? You know what I'm saying? And the Southern uh, Latin gang members are the ones in L.A. And the Northern Hispanic or Latin community are the ones that are like in the Bay Area on up. Correct. North of Fresno. North of Fresno. So I talk about the significance of this truth, just knowing that like, well, um, coming to understand or be aware of um, just these racial divides. Um, Where do you think? um, Well, clearly, you know, having different groups and minorities broken and divided by race, you know, helps out the whole white supremacist structure. So we know that. But. I mean, like, is there any other reason why there's there was this divide between the Southern and the Northerns and just this whole prison politics situation to where not all Latin gang members 
and black people are like connected how you would think in prison well you know i i think that the politics in prison is is actually a natural thing because if you go to a a university that has all these different groups you got blacks you got mexicans you got whites and you walk across the quad of that campus and you look around you're going to see the black the group of blacks are over there <laughs> Go watch the movie Higher Learning. You're going to see the Mexicans all chilling over there. And you're going to see these whites over there. I mean, we tend to group like that naturally. Right. So why are we surprised that we see that grouping in a prison system? You know, so it doesn't surprise me. Right. And then there's also some historical things that have occurred. Um, The reason why you have this divide between northern Mexicans and southern Mexicans is because they're culturally different. Their okay. cultural difference. A lot of the Southern Mexicans uh, from Los Angeles, uh, they're from the city. They're a little more hip, at least in the 60s when all of this happened. Okay. The Northern Mexicans were from rural agricultural communities in Central California and the Bay Area. Okay. So they weren't as hip. They weren't coming from large cities. Right. So when these two groups of Mexicans came together in prison, uh-huh. it was like two different cultural groups. Right. Now, they ended up conflict, having conflict with each other, and then they had a big conflict in um, 1967 that led to a murder and been hating each other ever since. Okay. So um, that's the reason why that exists. And then um, one of the main reasons why the Southern Mexicans hooked up with the Aryan Brotherhood is because of a guy named Joe Morgan, who was... Um, Joe Morgan grew up in a Mexican neighborhood here in L.A., but he was a white guy, and he had ties to the Aryan Brotherhood. So it was only another natural connection. Um, and it was all about bringing drugs into the prison and making money. Right. And the AB had more access than the Southern Mexicans did. And Joe Morgan had an allegiance towards Southern Mexicans, but he had friends that were AB, and they made that connection. So, um, you know, these these divisions formed over time, going all the way back to 1957 in Tracy. That's where it all starts. So, you know, this has been going on for how many years is that now? Like 60, 70 years, Mm -hmm. you know, all of this kind of started and developed over time. And I just say that, you know, you you look on a college campus or a high school campus that has this diversity. We naturally hang out with our own. We naturally group, you know, move into these groups like that. And it doesn't necessarily mean we're fighting each other on the campus. Mm -hmm. But when you're in a prison environment, you know, what do you expect? There's going to be a lot of conflict. Right. And I also want to say that I know some white dudes that have been in part of AB. And believe it or not, some of these white dudes are not racist at all, even though the perception of the Aryan Brotherhood is that it comes up under this cloak of white supremacy. Right. But a lot of these dudes are just joining up because there's no other white groups to join up with. And, you know, that's just the way it is in prison. Right. So um, there's some white guys I give a pass to because I knew they had to survive in prison. And and also because Mexican, the Southern Mexicans are linked up with the AB. I don't necessarily believe that all these Mexicans are racist either, you know. And a lot of these Mexicans that are in prison that are from Florence grew up with blacks in that same part of L.A. Mm-hmm. and were best friends. But when you get to prison, you got to divide. But when they get out of prison, they go back to being friends again. So prison is this place where you have to just, the rules are changed. And, and, you know, for the worst, these are the rules, and that's what you got to abide by. Mm -hmm. But once you get back out, things are different. And then also, if you're 
if you're a, an East Coast or a Hoover or you're a neighborhood crip, you know, these are all rivals on the streets of L.A. Right. When you're on that level four, you stand side by side with your enemy. You know, a guy that you was doing drive-by shootings on is now your homie. So, I mean, just the prison politics, it don't make sense to most of us on the outside, but that's just the way it is. (laughs) For sure, for sure. So, what do you think it would take for gangbanging to be phased out in its current stage, or is that even, like, possible? I think it's already happening. Okay. When you say gang banging, you're talking about the fighting and the shooting and the right. conflict. Well, check it out. In the, the 80s was the gang banging decade. From 1987 to 1993, we averaged close to a thousand murders per year in the city of Los Angeles. We're now at less than 300. We're around 200 and something every year now. So it's already began. We're at, we're one third or twenty five percent of the homicides that we used to have. Okay. Plus, we're seeing more gangs trucing up now than we've ever seen before. We got the Kitchen Crips and the East Coast Crips and a a thirty something year beef, you know. And I'm also in talks with ending a beef between 18th Street, hopefully um, between 18th Street and four different blood gangs. Okay. Um. Hopefully that happens. And if that happens, that's another truce that's going to have a significant impact on Los Angeles. So I believe we've already already moved into this period where gangbanging has evolved. Well, gangbanging is about to end. We're still going to have gangs. Okay, Gangs are not going anywhere. We've had gangs in the United States since 1840. But I do believe that the level of conflict... And the battles that we pick are going to be more specific. Before gangbanging was random, what you want to do? Let's go ride on them. Let's go ride on the enemy. All right. Now it's going to be like, I want to get that dude because of X, Y, Z. It's not going to be, it's not as random as it used to be. Okay. Before it was just like, hey, let's just jump in the car and go bust on somebody. Right. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to get down to zero murders in Los Angeles because in a city of 4 million, that's close to impossible. Mm-hmm. But I can see Los Angeles getting below 200 murders a year. Okay. We can get below 200 murders a year. And that is phenomenal when you're in a city of 4 million people. And it's happening across the country in other cities. New York City is 8 million people. Okay. They have about the same amount of murders as Los Angeles has, and they have twice the population. And they used to have 2,000 murders a year. So we're seeing this across the country. It's a trend. People of color are starting to realize, black people specifically, that another black man is not my enemy. Everyone wants what now? They want that bag. <laughs> they want to get that money. Right, right, right. And and ain't no money in killing people. Because right. all you're going to end up doing is um, find yourself in a grave for the karma that you owe for that. Right. Or in a prison cell for the next 30, 40, or 50 years. People don't want that now. Okay. Definitely, definitely. So, um, oh, somebody said just to, you know, they need help. They need help in the hood with the Grape Streets and the, um, and the uh, Bounty Hunters, just, you know, for the, your. The Grape Streets and the Bounty Hunters, you know what? That conversation is already taking place. Okay. That conversation is already taking place. Um, it takes a little bit of work, but we, we got conversations between 
the bounty hunters and the grapes. We got conversations between the East Coasts and and the grapes. We've already had huge conversations between the kitchens and the East Coasts. Um, we've had some conversations with uh, different sets on the West Side. I mean, it's all going into motion. Mm-hmm. We got conversations between um, a lot of blood sets that are having conflict right now. We got conversations mm-hmm. between the Peblos and the villains. We got um, so I mean it's 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 happening. And if you want to be a part of this, you know, hit me up. If you're from a neighborhood in Los Angeles and you want to see your neighborhood getting along with a neighborhood that it used to get along with and it don't get along with anymore, hit me up and I'll bring you to the table. Only positive brothers are allowed to come to these tables. <laughs> if you with the BS, don't hit me up. Don't even don't even contact me. But if you want to see peace, if you want to be a part of a truce, if you got a truce idea, if you're from one of these sets and you got a voice in your neighborhood, you got a voice in your community, come to the table. The more people come to the table, the faster these processes can take place. All right, definitely, definitely. Um, so tell the people where they can find you. And let the people know what we can look forward from Alex Alonzo and Street Gangs in 2020. Well, you know, I just took it to another level um, as you're doing now here with your podcast. I got a podcast called The Gangster Chronicles that comes out every Thursday morning where we talk about all these issues every single week with my co-host Reggie Wright Jr., who's currently in prison, (laughs) and James McDonald from Compton. And uh, I've been putting a lot of time and effort into that podcast and people can find me just on streetgangs.com and you can click on the contact link and all my contacts are there. And I'm also on all social media platforms at Alex Alonso 101. That's Alex Alonso with an S. And uh, again, don't fill my inbox with any BS because um, you're going to get that that karma going to come back to you if you come at me fall. I promise you. <laughs> Um, I'm just I'm just tired of uh, all the stresses and the drama that comes with doing this peace work and this truce work. So if you ain't with that peace and that truce work, you don't don't even waste your time. But if you are, you know, hit me up. Um, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and streetgangs.com as well. And also check out my latest editions on Street TV. I just uploaded like three or four videos this week and I got some great more content coming. All right, definitely. And you're also a, a lecturer. What are you? What What do you teach? I teach at the Cal State University system. I teach classes mostly in in sociology. I've taught classes um, social urban problems is one of my classes. Uh, for three or four years, I taught a class actually called Street Gangs at Cal State Long Beach, which was a very popular class. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much uh, mostly sociological courses in the social sciences. Definitely, definitely. Uh, Well, thank you so much for your time, Alex. And uh, make sure you guys check out his work at streetgangs.tv and YouTube channel Street Gangs.